I'm Carrie Miller, and Friday's upcoming Big Books and Bold Ideas is a dynamic conversation with novelist Marie Myung Oak Lee. Her central character is a physician who practices at a hospital in northern Minnesota. Lee did years of research on the changes rural medicine is undergoing, and that's where the interview begins. While we anticipate that show, we're bringing you one of my all-time favorite talking volumes. Dr. Abraham Verghese is an internist at Stanford, but he's also a novelist who wrote one of the great modern classics, Cutting for Stone. If you haven't read this book, put it at the top of your summer reading list. Dr. Verghese is approachable, introspective, and all-around lovely, and this evening was a highlight in our Talking Volume series. So here's Dr. Abraham Verghese on the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater. I'm often asked, and I was asked this after the last couple of shows, how we choose the authors for Talking Volumes, and you know, how do we come up with the mix of authors? Because as with this season, they're often very different. Some of it is serendipity, uh, an author is on tour, and the publicist calls and says, hey, would this work out for the dates? Yeah, it's perfect. Bring them into the fits. Some of it's talking volumes is our top priority. We are going nowhere before we book talking volumes, seriously. And these are those hard-to-please publicists out of New York. So we're always thrilled when that happens. And then what happens tonight is very rare. And that's basically that we latch on like little bulldogs and won't let go to try to get an author here. And that's what it took. We have been conniving. Dr. Verghese didn't believe me when I told him this, but we have been planning and conniving and scheming to bring him here for more than two years. I mean, this has been in the works that long. And I will say that it started with a conversation, and geez, I hope she's here Someone who is the wife of a physician at the Mayo Clinic pulled me aside after the show and said, this is two years ago, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could get Abraham Verghese? Absolutely. And so we went to work, and it took two years to make it happen. And so when we found out that he was going to come, we popped the champagne corks. We said, it's going to be a sellout. Here you all are. It is sold out. So please give Abraham Verghese a very warm welcome to the Fitzgerald Theater. All the way up there, too. Welcome. Wow, look at this crowd. I know. It was worth those two years of <laughs> conniving and scheming to get you here. You know, has, it, has some of this become old hat to you, all this love and attention? From <laughs> after a while, you just come to expect it? No, not at all. I think I, I still wind up pinching myself to, to think that, uh, you know, the book has caught on as it has and that people actually have nothing better to do on an evening like this than come hear me. It's a, <laughs> it's a matter of awe. Have you figured out why it has resonated the way it has? Well, I I mean, I think that... um, uh, I love a quote that Dorothy Allison has. She says that fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that perhaps I succeeded in this novel in 
telling a kind of truth that I think resonates for readers. And uh, I know that I'm drawn to a novel when I feel it echo with something in my life. And evidently I struck a chord with this book and I'm, I'm just enormously delighted. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking there's a lot of fiction out there and the writers, I think, believe that they are they're writing some kind of truth that's going to resonate. This is, this is kind of mysterious. I mean, it's a story that takes place in a place that a lot of Americans aren't familiar with. I mean, yes, it moves to New York, but it begins in Ethiopia. Physicians, uh, a family that's not like, you know, most of the families that we understand. It, you know, puncture some of that mystery. What, what well, is it about this book that has resonated? I wish I knew, honestly, Carrie. I'll just say I'm delighted. I think if I had to hazard a guess, I think that you know, every book presents very particular people and families, but they resonate with some sort of archetypal construct that we have in our minds of what a family is, of what loyalty is. And I think some of the themes in the book are very much about love, about betrayal, about family. And it's very medical. And I think we're all inherently drawn to things medical. I have a theory. I think someone told me many years ago that any book that had a doctor and a dog in it was destined to, <laughs> destined to work. And so this has a lot of doctors and a fair number of dogs in it as well. <laughs> That's true. Um, I also think that we're inherently drawn to things medical. I mean, after all, life is a, is a terminal condition. I hope this is not news for you. You know that, right? <laughs> and I think given that, we're all inherently interested in things medical because I think they almost certainly echo with some experience in our life or might one day and therefore I think we're drawn to those kinds of stories at least that's the best I can uh, come to as to why the book has done uh, so very well I'm delighted you um, while we're talking about the medical dimension of this you wrote something in the acknowledgments page that I thought was interesting. Medicine is a demanding mistress, yet she is faithful, generous, and true. I thought it was interesting that you used those specific words, faithful and true. <laughs> yes, um, I suppose I was paraphrasing Chekhov. Uh, Chekhov famously, as you know, Chekhov died in 1904. He died awfully young. Uh, but one of the things he said was that... Um, uh, he said that medicine is my wife and literature is my mistress. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was sort of playing on that, paraphrasing a little bit. Uh, but I felt that medicine to me had more the quality of a mistress, uh, you know, never losing its allure, never, uh, never completely succumbing to me, never uh, completely mine to own, always uh, enticing, always continuing this romantic, passionate pursuit I don't think I could say the same of my, my wives, my ex-wives, I should say. So. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> what else do you want to say about uh, that? That was, entirely, <laughs> that was entirely my feeling, though. But uh, <laughs> I think that's why I chose the word mistress, because there's something to me about medicine that's quite undying, that I, that I think I'll always feel that way about it. But that does, that also implicates um, being torn between that part of your life and something else and kind of the demanding, I think of a, a mistress, I guess, as somewhat of a demanding yeah. person that you feel conflicted 
about when you're there, you should be somewhere else, and yeah. when you're somewhere else, you should be there. Well, I actually think that, um, you know, I think people often see me as wearing two hats. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm a doctor and I'm a writer, but I'm actually not conflicted about that at all. Uh, I see myself as all physician. Uh, I feel the incredible privilege of uh, being invited into people's lives at a very, very uh, special and, uh, um, you know, poignant moment for them. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't feel that enormous awe and privilege of being in medicine. And to me, the writing emanates from that stance. Uh, The writing comes out of that love of medicine. It's not something separate. Uh, Other doctors perhaps play golf. They do other things. I don't play golf. This is my golf equivalent, if you like, is that I, I write about the things that move me in medicine. So I do think that it's very easy to get so sucked into medicine that you forget your responsibilities in the real world. And uh, that may be the, the conflict that I refer to a little bit. And I think especially when you're a young doctor, you're very susceptible to that because it's almost easier to be in the busy world of the hospital and the, you know, in that environment that's neither day nor night and where you're very much needed than to wrestle with issues of, of family and so on that, you know, you might want to escape perhaps. So Thomas Stone, the character in, in the book, I think in many ways represents that struggle, represents mm-hmm. that dialectic between, you know, medicine and living in the secular world. He's, Thomas Stone is an extraordinary observer and listener in a lot of different ways. That's the thing that seems difficult for perhaps young doctors to develop. All that information, all of the technology swirling in your head, and to really bring full focus to those powers of observation and listening. Yeah, I think it is tricky. I mean, I don't think it's the fault of the young doctors. I think it's very much the system we have created where we've become so technologically savvy, which in, in itself is a wonderful thing, but we've also become technologically dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we are missing the low-hanging fruit that I think is there to pluck. Uh, my sense is that if you listen carefully and if you examine the patient well, you actually can make fairly obvious diagnosis and you can also order your tests judiciously. Uh, but I think what happens in the, in the increasingly time-pressured world there's sometimes the illusion that it's easier to just order the test than to listen a little longer and try and sort out what's going on. Uh, so I don't blame the young doctors, actually. I blame us, the old doctors, for creating a system that's so dysfunctional that, in a sense, they're, they've inherited the mess that, that we created at some level. I felt like, though, you brought that, that discipline that you've you've created for yourself that wonderful observation and that acute listening into the writing. And, and I, I was interested in how aware you were of that. Well, I think, um, I think there's a lot of parallels, strangely, between medicine and writing. Um, I remember hearing both at the Iowa Writers Workshop, uh, which I attended, as well as in medical school, the aphorism, God is in the details. Mm-hmm. I use that as a teacher when I teach medical students, that the details... Matter. It's a strange paraphrasing of the devil in the details, which is the actual 
quote, but we say God is in the details. And I think that the discipline of being an internist, in my case, and taking disparate clues that you put together and you observe and making them into a whole, uh, it's very similar to what you try and do as a writer. You're trying to bring disparate things together and in the reader's mind uh, create this uh, entity out of, uh, you know, out of all these minor minor details that for them becomes real and whole. So there's a lot of parallels, a, a lot of attention to detail pays off in both disciplines. I mean, when you say God is in the details, I understand what that means for medicine. I, what, what does it mean for the construction of a, of a complicated and nuanced novel like this? Well, it can be as simple as um, Flannery O'Connor has a great line where she describes an old woman whose face was as round and innocent as a cabbage. <laughs> she doesn't need to say more, you know? I mean, that detail says it all. So I think it can be as microscopic, if you will, as that. Or it can be as macroscopic as describing in some detail a technical operation that is completely foreign to the reader mm -hmm. uh, and to some degree foreign to the writer in, uh, in a sense. But I think it's out of those details that you create a, a, a real world. Um, I remember as a child being greatly drawn to the uh, uh, C.S. Forrester novels on, on Hornblower, you know, in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, Hornblower was a young midshipman, then he becomes a captain, then he becomes an admiral, and it's full of all these sailing details. I mean, incredible details about sailing, which to me made the book so real, even though I still don't know port from starboard, or, you know. Uh, and I reread the books recently and recognized that I, I still love them just as much. And uh, something about the authority of detail uh, was absolutely central to the book being so important to me. And Did you I see, say the authority of detail? I'm sorry? Did you say the authority of detail? The authority of yeah. detail. I mean, I see that with um, John Updike writing about golf. I don't play golf, but I can read Updike about golf, and I'm completely drawn into it. Uh, there's a mastery of detail. Uh, Tom Clancy writing about submarines. Uh, you know, I think that detail is important, but it's not everything. It's uh, part of what makes something real to the reader. Um, you mentioned those those novels that you loved that were about the high seas, and it reminded me that one of the things that Juno Diaz said when he was here a couple weeks ago was that above all else, he is a reader. Before he's a writer, before he's a teacher, it all comes back to reading. It, it does sound like you're saying doctor first, reader, perhaps second writer, where does that fit in? But I am interested in how influential reading was for you at, at a very young age. Yeah, I, I, was, um, I was very much a reader. I think that that really helped me when I decided to try to write. Um, although I had a lot of catching up to do, I had a lot of medical reading I'd done uh, and, you know, had done that at the expense of the kind of reading that, you know, you had done perhaps uh, every, every year. Right. Uh, but I was tremendously influenced by reading. I, I, I didn't really have much talent in anything very special in the curriculum. I remember... Uh, my parents being, I imagine, a bit disappointed in me. Um, Indian parents are very much like, middle-class Indian parents are very much like middle-class Jewish parents, I, I sense, in that uh, your choices in life as a child you feel are 
You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a failure. These are your options. <laughs> and uh, I had a brother, I have a brother who is a precocious uh, mathematical whiz. In fact, he's a professor at MIT, has been for 20 years. And I remember when he announced that he was going to be a f an engineer at the age of eight or nine, my parents' joy was something to behold. You know? <laughs> um, nothing I had ever said produced that kind of reaction from them. No best-selling novels. No, nothing no. like that. And, and I remember um, announcing to them at that very moment that I was going to be a physician. And their expression was just like yours, Carrie. It was like, okay. You know, no, it was <laughs> my expression is not like that. And it was, uh, it was ironic to me that I would actually come to medicine because of a book. I, I was a precocious reader. That was the only thing I had going for me. I think I, I remember I discovered Lady Chatterley's Lover when I was nine and a half. And I discovered... A young. I was fairly young. I discovered Lolita when I was 10. Wow. And then the book that changed my life, that brought me to medicine, uh, was one that I picked up. Uh, it was Of Human Bondage by Somerset Mom. And I picked it up because the title held great promise at that time. <laughs> but, the, but the book turned out to be about so much more than anything I could have imagined. And there was just one line in there, one little, uh, one little paragraph that essentially was my calling to medicine. And if, if you like, I'm happy to tell yes. you about that. Um, so the, the book, to summarize for those of you who know the book, uh, don't, might not remember, it, it has to do with a young character called Philip. You're introduced to him on page one and discover that he has a club foot, He's being brought to his mother's deathbed. She's dying. She dies by page two. It's one of the most miserable starts of a book that you could ever have. He has a terrible childhood because he has this club foot uh, deformity and he's brought up by foster parents. But his escape is to paint. He loves to be an artist. And when he comes of age, he goes to Paris and against his foster parents' advice, he goes there and he's getting lessons from Monsieur Fournier and someone who exhibits at the National Gallery. But as the months go on, he starts to lose faith. And eventually his art teacher comes up and comes to see him, and Philip begs him to look at all the paintings and tell him if he thinks that he has what it takes to go on, because he's running out of money, he's running out of faith, and the teacher looks at all the paintings and essentially says, is there something else you could be doing? That's just heartbreaking. In fact, the exact line he says after that is, don't take this badly. I wish someone had told me what I'm telling you at, my, at your age. There is nothing worse for the temper than discovering one's own mediocrity at an advanced age. <laughs> and so then Philip goes back to England to be a medical student. There's some money left for him to do that. And the first two years of medicine are drudgery. And there comes this moment when he finally arrives on the wards and he's seeing patients. And Somerset Maugham describes the moment as follows. Philip saw humanity there in the rough, the artist's canvas, and he said to himself, this is something I can do, this is something I can be good at. And ladies and gentlemen, th those lines just spoke to me. It was, uh, you know, as dramatic as St. Paul on the road to Damascus, it was a sense of, you know, calling uh, that, you know, not everybody could be a gifted mathematician or, or a scientist or artist, but anybody, anybody with a basic empathy for the human condition, a basic
curiosity about their fellow human beings and a, a willingness to be a hard worker could be a great physician. That's what I took away. It completely changed my life. And I still feel that same way about medicine. Have you ever wondered why it is that human suffering in literature, I, I think, is sometimes more powerful to us than you know, human suffering writ large in our community. I mean, why do we relate so much to the suffering of someone like Anna Karenina or Hamlet or any of those tragic characters? Yeah, I think you actually bring up an excellent point. It's one that uh, I believe in strongly and I use with my students, which is that, you know, no matter how much we live our lives, we... We can't really experience everything. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when we experience something in the abstract, like an accident on the road, it's rare that we fully experience it. Yes. It becomes this thing that we almost block out. But, you know, if you read about child abuse in a pediatric textbook, it, it just reads like something out of a textbook. But if you watch Bastard Out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison or read the book, you have a visceral experience of what that's like. Uh, or, you know, end of life, which concerns us so much. Uh, you can read about it in a palliative care textbook, and it will never be as poignant as if you read The Death of Ivan Illich by Tolstoy. Uh, and so I feel that literature has, a, has an important function. It does more than entertain us. Uh, it tells us the truth. It um, allows us to sort of walk in the shoes of people who otherwise we would never uh, get to walk in their shoes. And more than that, I think that there's an important function to taking the little images on the, on the pages that we call words mm -hmm. and translating them into signals in our head and making these mental movies. And I worry that if we don't continue to have the experience of doing that, if we don't read, a critical part of our imagination atrophies. And that part of our imagination has so much to do with empathy, with self-awareness, with epiphanies of the sort I described. So I think you, you really touched on something. Literature... Uh, is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. And we can't afford not to go there. You know, what you've said about the imagination, too, um, think about how much we're filling in, even as we're not realizing it, in some of those, the best novels, right? We don't need it all told to us. And that's powerful, too, isn't it? We're bringing we, we, our own life experience, our own imagination to that. Absolutely. In fact, I, I would, uh, I mean, I often get asked things like, what does cutting for stone mean? And I, and I answer, not facetiously, but I answer quite seriously, it means whatever you think it means. Because I believe, as you're implying, that, you know, when you, when you have a novel like, like um, Bleak House, Charles mm -hmm. Dickens' Bleak House, where does Bleak House exist? Does it exist on the pages of that book in the library? And the answer is no. It really only exists when the reader engages it. And so the writer provides their words, the reader provides their imagination, and somewhere in middle space there's this coming together of writer and reader, and you start to make this mental movie, which is very much yours. It's your creation. It's very unique to you, uh, which is why when you have the experience of going to the movie theater and seeing the movie version of your book, and they've cast Antonio Bandera, for God's sakes, in the role of... <laughs> A person that you pictured completely differently, <laughs> you're crushed. And um, you know, so you're think, crushed by Antonio Banderas. Well, I mean, 
I don't know. He's well, only only if the person that you had in mind was Orson Welles or something, you know. <laughs> right. My point is, it's it's all so unique and it's also uh, important. It's an important function that we uh, that we follow. I'm actually very impatient with. Uh, uh, friends, especially fellow physicians, who tell me, "Oh, I'm a serious sort of person. I, you know, I don't read fiction. I'm oh. biographies and nonfiction." I, and I always come right at them. I say, "Really? You don't think fiction is important? Have you heard of Uncle Tom's Cabin? <laughs> that ended slavery in this country. It wasn't a politician. A president didn't do it. You know, uh, a political scientist didn't do it. One novel captured the public's imagination." and started the tide towards the emancipation. And uh, that's the power of literature. That's what it can do. What's the answer you usually get to that from those recalcitrant doctors? Well, I think it gives them pause. I think it gives them pause. I, I use another strategy with my medical students. I tell them, if you're not reading fiction, if you're not having that experience of taking words off the page and processing them into that strange alchemy that creates this mental movie in your head, a critical part of your imagination will atrophy and wither away. And it happens that that critical part of your imagination could also make you a good doctor. So read fiction. It's as integral to your well-being as anything else you're doing. I have to ask you, besides uh, on human bondage, what else is on that? What's the next book on that list that you fall back on? Well, I'm a great fan of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it would actually be a shame to try and name people because I would wind up leaving out so many names. Just one, though. Uh, well, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Marquez, Dickens very much, uh, John Irving's work, Michael Andante, Jane Smiley. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just off the top of my head. But I also like, you know, believe it or not, I also like mystery novels. I, I, I read Alan First, who writes oh, all these spy novels in World First. War II. Yeah. I love Le Carré, and I love this sensation uh, as a reader, and this is what I try to aspire to as a writer, or what I aspired to in my one and only novel. That, I mean, I'm sorry, that's the only one I wrote. Um, I aspire to this, this feeling of you pick up a book, and in three pages, you've forgotten uh, where you are. Yes. You're transported to this other world. You live through three generations, and you come back and it's still Tuesday. <laughs> that kind of transport is, I think, what I'm after. And I'm, very, uh, I'm not very discriminating as long as the person can make it happen for me. Uh, and so many good people can make it happen. But I think, you know, the big grand epic novel is still very much the thing that draws me. I'm a little impatient with, with you know, postmodern stuff with lots of white pages, and, uh, you know, it just doesn't hold me as much as a, a good epic novel. Will you read uh, something from your epic? I'd be honored to. I have to explain these glasses. I lost mine, and... Uh, They're bright at, red. At the lost and found, they offered me a replacement. <laughs> I noticed these earlier. I kind of wonder what the story was. <laughs> And uh, I actually kind of like them now, so... They look good. <laughs> should I read the... the first? Okay. So I, I should set up this passage. That'd be great. Uh, this is the moment when Marion, the protagonist and the narrator, uh, arrives in America for the first time. And he's overwhelmed by, by Kennedy Airport and by coming out of Kennedy and into the traffic. This is his first engagement with America. 
The black-suited drivers led their passengers to sleek black cars, but my man led me to a big yellow taxi. In no time, we were driving out of Kennedy Airport, heading to the Bronx. We merged at what I thought was dangerous speed onto a freeway and into the slipstream of racing vehicles. Marion, jet travel has damaged your eardrums, I said to myself, because the silence was surreal. In Africa, cars ran not on petrol, but on the squawk and blare of the horns. Not so here. The cars were near silent, like a school of fish. All I heard was the whish of rubber on concrete or asphalt. Superorganism. A biologist coined that word for our giant African ant colonies, claiming that consciousness and intelligence resided not in the individual ant, but in the collective ant mind. The trail of red taillight stretching to the horizon as day broke around us made me think of that term. Order and purpose must reside somewhere other than within each vehicle. That morning, I heard the hum, the respiration of the superorganism. It's a sound I believe that only the new immigrant hears, but not for long. By the time I learned to say, six-inch number seven on rye with Swiss hold the lettuce, the sound too was gone. It became part of what the mind would label silence. You were now subsumed into the superorganism. The silhouette of this most famous city, the twin exclamation marks at one end, King Kong's climbing toy in the middle, was familiar. Charles Bronson, Gene Hackman, Clint Eastwood, the Empire Theater and Cinema Adua had seen to that. My hubris was to think that I understood America from such movies. But the real hubris I could see now was America's, and it was hubris of scale. I saw it in the steel bridges stretching out over water. I saw it in the freeways looping over one another like tangled tapeworms. Hubris was my taxi speedometer, wider than the steering wheel, as if Dolly had grabbed the round gauge and pulled its ears. Hubris was the needle now showing 70 miles per hour, or well over 110 kilometers per hour, a speed unimaginable in our faithful Volkswagen, even if we'd found a suitable road. What human language captures the dislocation, the acute insufficiency of being in the presence of the superorganism, the sinking, shrinking feeling at this display of industrial steel and light and might? It was as if nothing I'd ever done in my life prior to this counted. As if my past life was revealed to be a waste, a gesture in slow motion, because what I considered scarce and precious was in fact plentiful and cheap. And what I counted as rapid progress turned out to be glacially slow. The observer, that old record keeper, the chronicler of events, made his appearance in that taxi. The hands of my clock turned elastic while I imprinted these feelings in memory. You must remember this, it said. It was all I had, all I've ever had. The only currency, the only proof that I was alive, memory. You're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theatre with author Abraham Verghese. His most recent book is Cutting for Stone, and I'm Carrie Miller. Um, You mentioned John Irving uh, a moment ago, and I want to talk a little bit about your friendship with him. Um, You met him when you went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Is that right? Yes. uh, He had actually come there to attend the NCAA wrestling finals. Really? And... uh, Frank Conroy, who was the uh, Writers' Workshop 
director at the time uh, persuaded him to do a reading and it's typical after the reading to have a party in one of the students' houses for the writer and typically you would have a keg of beer and everyone would ignore, ignore the visiting writer because you, know, <laughs> you didn't want to acknowledge that they, were, they had done something that you were aspiring to do. Um, so everybody's playing it super cool. Right, exactly. Amazing yeah. writers in the room. But I was a bit of an atypical student. I had come to the workshop later in life. Uh, I'd been practicing for some years, and I suppose I didn't know the rules, so uh, my wife and I went up and talked to him, and it turned out that at that moment he was working on a book that turned out to be The Son of the Circus, A Son mm-hmm. of the Circus, mm-hmm. which had to do with an Indian physician who goes back to India and adopts, uh, you know, is involved with circus dwarfs. And, and I turned out to be a, a good reader for the book in the sense that I was a physician. And so we started a correspondence and we've had a lovely correspondence going on from 1992 uh, to right now. Oh, you still We you still, still correspond. And, and I actually, uh, I hate the day about two, three years ago when he finally switched from a typewriter to a computer, and now I start to get email from him. And uh, I used to love, and I still love getting his typed-out letters, and I would type out a letter back. And, you know, we've met um, several times, um, and I feel very close to him. He's been very, very uh, good to me. But I think it's our correspondence. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a wonderful correspondence that I shall treasure. Well, what, what is some of the best advice that he's given you? Well, I think the advice has been, you know, at many different levels. Uh, in, the, in the time I've known him, I've had some, you know, reversals in my life, uh, um, uh, two marriages that have ended. And, you know, he was, you know, very much someone who would call as soon as he heard the news and make sure I was all right and, you know, have sort of philosophical things uh, to say to me, such as, don't ever do this again. <laughs> uh, no, I'm being facetious. He's just been... <laughs> profoundly helpful at many different levels. I think writing uh, is a struggle, especially if you're full-time in something else. Um, it's something that you will lose faith in from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's these sorts of friendships, these sense of connectedness to others who are also laboring, and particularly to be seeing someone like him and, and you know, watch his work ethic was very, very helpful and inspiring to me. The... Um the struggle is always, it's interesting to hear writers talk about the, the ethic of every day getting up and knowing that the blank page is waiting for you. And all. Wow. But see, I'm ah, blessed yes. because I get up every day knowing that I have to go to work. Right. <laughs> to go and practice I, medicine. Yeah, to practice medicine. I actually feel that that has been my great saving uh, because. Really? I have to steal time to write. I have to fight for the time to write. I have to write at nights and weekends. And, you know, I have to... It comes after my kids and, you know, their concerns. So, but in a funny way, I think that's really helped me. I would be... Uh, you know, if someone offered me a villa on the Mediterranean for me to go and write for six months, um, I'd probably take it, but I would, <laughs> I would be terrified that I have, I'd have nothing to say. Uh, for me... It feels very much as though the everyday engagement in medicine is precisely what allows me to write, even though I may not be very productive and I'm very, very slow. Uh, I'm a big fan of William Carlos Williams, who, mm-hmm. as you know, was a America's poet laureate, but he was also a pediatrician. And he yes. pa- practiced in Patterson, New Jersey. In his 70th year, he wrote to a friend to say, I'm giving up my evening clinics. And 
there was a quality to his work, I think, that came from that sense of being in the workaday life. He actually was a poet first and then decided that if he was going to have to say something meaningful about the world, he needed to be swimming in the river of life and not standing on the banks and watching. And I, I have the sense that I'm in the river of life. Um, I also feel very unpressured about my writing. This is going to sound very strange, Gary, but what I'm trying to say is I love what I do in medicine. And therefore, uh, and I have great aspirations for all my books. I want them to do extremely well. But if nothing happened with them, I'd still be okay. I, I love what I do. And I can afford to take my time to get it right. Uh, my, you know, my, my house rent is not depending on the next advance. Mm-hmm. And that is the great privilege that, that medicine has given me, the, the chance to have a wonderful livelihood and do something that I tremendously love and take the pressure off the writing. So there's no blank page staring at me. But, but I can't help but think when you say, if nothing happened with my writing, here you sit with an international bestseller that three years later we sell out, you know, a thousand-seat theater to hear what you have to say. I mean, would you really be that sanguine about no, I, spending yeah, that much time on a book, putting it out there, and nobody really takes notice? You, you haven't had that experience. You're right. I don't know that I would be that sanguine, but in a sense, I, I've, um, I've gone through that. My, my first book, My Own Country, um, was on the front page of the New York Times Book Review. Yes. But it came out on the front page of the New York Times Book Review, four weeks after I'd finished the book tour, there were no more books on the shelves. You know, there have been many missed opportunities, and I think my agent and my editor were much more upset about it than I realized I should be. I was just so grateful that a book was out there and that, uh, that I'd published it, and I was ready to think about the next one. Again, I, I, as I said, this will sound strange, uh, I dreamt of the success that this book would have. I prayed that it would do everything that it's doing. And, you know, it's marvelous. And not a day goes by that I don't, you know, wake up and wonder if I'm dreaming. Uh, but my point is that I think, I, I think that that happened because I paid my dues for a long time mm-hmm. and because I wasn't in a hurry and because I kept the reader in mind. I had the greatest respect for the reader and I don't, didn't want to release something to them that wasn't as good as I could make it and wasn't ready for them. And that luxury is what medicine gives me. I want to know how you think about that respect for the reader. I'm sorry, how I... How, I, how do you think of well, I, that I, respect for the reader? I picture the reader as someone with a short attention span who is doing me the honor of trying this book by someone with a last name that's not pronounceable and a... <laughs> a title like Cutting for Stone, which is entirely mysterious to them. And I picture them as someone that I need to, in the first few pages, grab and never let them down. And every paragraph has to measure up to that. If it represents a paragraph that entertains me but doesn't do the work that they need done and distracts them, then that paragraph has to go. So. It's, it's sort of, that's, that's what I keep in mind. I have a sense of reverence. I picture one reader. There's a reader I have in mind, not a particular person, but uh, he or she is sort of sitting there opposite me as I'm writing, and the words have to live up to their expectations. You know, after, after listening to you speak, I felt there was a kind of 
there's a very nice rhythm and cadence to your writing. And now that we've been talking for a while, I know where that comes from. The language, that rhythm, the pace of of your writing sounds a lot to me like the way you speak. Does it really? Well, I'm, Are you aware of that? <laughs> I'm not. Uh, uh, but I will tell you that I had an aunt, uh, God bless her, she passed away, who was a bit of a dilettante. She had uh, tried everything. She'd been a stockbroker. She'd been an um, analyst. She'd been this, she'd been that. It was like she tried so many different careers. And when my first book came out and you know, she 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 called me up and she was gushing over. It's so beautiful. The language is so good. I I want to be a writer. She said. <laughs> and what what I'm getting at is, if it sounds that way, it didn't come out that way first. Okay, blush. yeah, that's so what I want to know. A lot of hard work and tuning and listening to it to try and get it to sound uh, musical. I mean, I actually love lyrical writing, and I, I love that. I think more than I love clever writing. Uh, so I look up to people like Michael Andante, who has so much poetry in his mm-hmm. in his words, and I actually read a lot of poetry, and so I find myself trying to make it as lyrical as I can when it needs to be. I mean, you can't. There are times when you just need to, you know, you have exposition, you need to get things done, but there are other times when you can stop and uh, you know try to keep the reader in the mood by the rhythm of the thing. Is some of that done aloud then? Are, are you writing and then reading aloud and writing? Yeah, I think you must more. read aloud. I think it's only when you read aloud that you begin to see the repetitions that you don't want or that you begin to amplify the sort of alliterations that have popped up uh, and take, take recognition of them. So I think you, you must read aloud. I actually delight in having uh, uh, someone, typically a very close and trusted friend, read to me so that wow. I can experience what I've just written. And, so uh, they read the, the manuscript they in read progress the back to you. Back to me. And, you know, sometimes you can sort of hear and see the flaws in a way that you couldn't, uh, you know, if you were just trying to do it yourself. And then what do you hear as that happens? Well, you hear when it clunks. I think that's what you're listening for. Uh, you hear when it's not working. You hear when something, uh, you know, moves you as a listener. Right. And you think, well, let me gather more material around that. Let me amplify that and play down this part. So um, it's, it's very subjective. And then I have a wonderful editor uh, for this book, Cutting for Stone. Her name is Robin Desser out of Knopf. And I had the great privilege of writing the book and sending her sections as I was writing. And... Uh, frankly, honestly, I never thought that an American public would have patience with a story set in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And uh, had, she said, had she said to me, Abraham, you know, this is a great novel, but the part in Ethiopia is just kind of boring. Let's just start in the Bronx. Um, I might well have done that because I trusted her so much. But she had faith that it was important to tell the story in Ethiopia. She had faith that more details were needed. She, had, she would often, you know push me to, to give more details. Or she would say, you know, these 300 pages you send me are brilliant. They don't belong in this book. And, huh. and for you to Did take that... Did that really happen? All the time, yeah. <laughs> and, you only, and that's what an editor is for, because you need to have someone whose judgment you trust. Uh, and it's going to be painful, because they're going to be objective and say, this is not what we're expecting of you. You can do better. 
or this is good, but it's not what you're trying to write. We wouldn't, if you'd started the novel in the Bronx, we wouldn't have known what we would have missed. But I'm so glad you didn't. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> <laughs> right? It, that's exactly where it belonged. Actually, it, it started even further back from, from there, right? I mean, we learn all the detail on the ship. Yes, indeed, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the, the notion of the book having three continents, if you will. Right. Um, I love the phrase, geography is destiny. Which, by the way, I should mention, I heard that phrase, geography is destiny, in medical school. It was taught to me as something Freud had said. Freud was talking about the proximity of the birth canal to all the interesting organs nearby <laughs> and had said geography is destiny. And I, you know, at the time, as, as, a, young, as a young medical student, I thought, this is profound. This is exactly why I went to medical school, for these kinds of insights. And imagine my disappointment years later to find out that Freud never said it. Uh, or if he said it, he was paraphrasing Napoleon, who said, geography is destiny. <laughs> right. but, but in my life, certainly, geography is destiny. My parents are from the south of India, uh, from a very small Christian community. Uh, we're called St. Thomas Christians. We owe our Christianity, we believe, to St. Thomas the Apostle, doubting Thomas, who landed in India and converted this small community, which is now fairly large, but small by Indian standards. Uh, they were hired by the emperor of Ethiopia who came on a state visit and was curious about this Christian community which had parallels to his own land and hired all 500 of his teachers that he was for the schools he was building from this one community. And so my parents arrived within two weeks of each other and because their geography changed, their destiny changed. Right. Not to mention they met and married each other and they had us and... Because I was born uh, in Ethiopia, uh, my destiny was completely different. And I actually began medical school there, uh, a lovely school started by the British Council for East Africa. But in my third year, a civil war uh, broke out, uh, a very harsh military government took over, and I came to America. And because I changed my geography, I changed my destiny. I felt that in many ways, had I stayed on in that anarchy, I might have succumbed. Uh, many of my classmates became guerrilla fighters, died. I got away. But I was very willing to trade getting away from medicine, in a sense. I, I thought, well, it's my fate never to finish medicine. I'll just come, and I became an orderly. Uh, I couldn't get back into a medical school because I didn't have a basic degree. In many mm -hmm. parts of the world, you go straight from high school to pre-medicine to medical school. And, you know, I worked as an orderly for one and a half years in uh, New Jersey, and I I still look back on that as the most formative medical training I had because I saw what happens in the 23 hours and 57 minutes that the doctors are not in the room. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I'm not being facetious. It gave me the, the strongest regard for my colleagues in the nursing profession and, and the allied uh, professions. And then one day when I was an orderly, I saw a textbook of medicine on a counter that a medical student had left behind in this hospital. And it was Harrison's textbook of medicine. And it was the textbook I knew inside out. I loved that book. And that book just awakened something in me again, that I had to finish medicine. So I actually wound up going to the land of my parents' birth, to India, which took me in as a displaced person. And again, I changed my geography and changed my destiny. So 
that phrase has been hugely uh, operative in my life, that sense of changing geography and changing destiny. How do you think about the difference between healing and curing? And how do you talk about that to your medical students? Yeah, I, I, I talk about them. I talk about that to them all the time. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm quick to tell them that when I was their age, I was caught up in what I call the conceit of cure, the sense that we could fix anything. And if we couldn't fix it, it was because the patient came too late or something. And I was humbled. I think a generation of us were humbled by HIV. I went into the specialty of infectious disease just as HIV was coming along. And uh, I remember my own epiphany about healing versus curing. Um, I was practicing in Johnson City, Tennessee. We had no drugs for HIV. You were just presiding over people progressively getting sicker. And one morning I looked at my clinic roster and there's a delightful young man who I, I loved as a patient. I loved all my patients, but I had gotten to know him very well over the years. And I saw that he was scheduled to be there and I was happy about that. And as soon as I saw that, the phone rang, and uh, it was my nurse saying, when she hung up, she said it was his mother to say that he was too weak to come to the clinic, so he wouldn't be coming. And yet he wasn't sick enough to be in the hospital, and there wasn't necessarily very much I could do had I put him in the hospital, you know. And it just didn't sit well with me that I would never see him again if I didn't do something mm -hmm. different, uh, just because he couldn't come to the clinic and so out of my own need, uh, I drove out to where he lived in the boonies in the countryside, and I went there for my own purposes. And yet when I drove into the house, when I walked into the house, my visit had a profound impact on that family, a profound impact on him. It was almost as though I was helping him to come to terms with the illness, with his death. I was helping the family to come to terms with it. And when I left that, that trailer, uh, I remember thinking then that, you know, this is what the horse and buggy doctor of 150 years ago did so well. They had nothing, but yet, and they couldn't cure, but yet they could, in a sense, heal. And the analogy I use with my medical students, I, I say, and I'll use with you, imagine going back from this event tonight, and God forbid this shouldn't happen to you, but imagine going back to your homes and finding that the lock is, your, your door's open. The lock is in splinters. You walk into the house and everything is in disarray and all your valuables are gone. Your jewelry, your computers, your television, cash. Um, everything of value to you is gone. Not to mention the house is ransacked. You would feel terrible. Uh, at one level, you'd, you'd be feeling terrible about the things you lost. But at another level, you'd be feeling terrible about a sense of violation. Someone came into your sacred space and did this to you. And if the police come by an hour later and say, we caught the person who did this, here is all your stuff back, at that moment you are cured, but you are not healed. Your sense of violation might be so strong, you might actually leave that apartment and move somewhere else. You will always be bothered by that. And I think all illness has those two aspects. There's always a physical sense of loss. But there's always, especially with diseases like cancer, HIV, there's always a sense of violation. Why me? Why now? And I think we in Western medicine have gotten you know, very good at the cure, but need to appreciate the great potency that resides within us uh, by presence and by our commitment uh, to heal. Uh, and it's, a, it's sort of a conveying to the patient that I will never, never let you down. I'll be with you. 
to the end. This was long anticipated and worth the wait. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.